Welcome to the Superstruct Show, the podcast for founders who depend on devs to get things done. I'm your host, David Gutman. Today, I'm joined by Rob McGray. Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you, David. Uh, happy to be here um, on the Superstruct Show. Um, I'm not sure if you're going to if you're recording these in order, um, but I but I am definitely excited to to be in this first season. Yeah, awesome. So, for folks who are just meeting you for the first time. Could you share a little bit about who you are and what you do? Absolutely. Um, I'm located in Los Angeles, California. Uh, I, I have a hard time calling myself this, but but I guess I am uh, an entrepreneur. You are definitely an entrepreneur. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it sounds so weird. Um, I've been a part of uh, a handful of startups um, and kind of had the full gambit of, of uh, you know, success, failure, success, failure, failure, failure. Um, like everybody else who sounds like an entrepreneur. Yeah. Who's in the game. Um, you know, I've been around for, for probably about 25 years I've been doing this and picked up some, some lessons or some, some wisdom possibly along the way. And, uh, always happy to share my experiences and, uh, you know, kind of my playbook. Awesome. So, uh, getting into it, what kinds of things have you needed to build for your many companies? Like, what's an example of uh, of something that you needed a team of people to build? Yeah, I mean, I tend to tell to tell that that part of the story begins probably with a company called Rever back in around two hundred uh, two thousand five two thousand six. It was a early video sharing company. Uh, kind of launched when YouTube and Vimeo and Blip TV and all these others kind of hit the scene and you know, it was a it was an interesting endeavor. It was a video sharing platform with a revenue model. Of, you know, wow! And um, <laughs> we we had we took had a while to, for that yeah, to, to catch yeah, on. Yeah, but we had to build a video sharing platform. Um, and and at that time, it wasn't necessarily a you you didn't go to AWS for it. It didn't exist. Um, yeah, there know, wasn't we, really like an off the shelf here by your video platform. No, we had to build in the the logic. Um, for the ad serving technology, so that we could we could make money, uh, and and we also decided that we would um, essentially put out an API so that others who wanted to have video sites could basically use our platform as a back end to serve those videos and make money off uh, any any views that they were getting on their own sites. Wow, yeah, pretty pretty ahead of the times. Um, so how did you how did you approach? building this? Did you, you put together a team, uh, for this? Where did this you find is, them? This is one of these weird situations where I, you know, I, I come in a little bit late. Um, I do some advising for the company. They launch, they end up on, you know, the, the, the front page of, uh, what was it at the Dig? time? It wasn't, it was one of those, right? There's dig, there's news.com, um, slash you know. dot. Yeah. They, they, they end up on, on the front page of one of them and the site just falls to its knees. Uh, and, and then you get the phone call, mm-hmm. you know, like, so you got the hug of death. Yeah. Hey, can you come in and, and help us with this? And, you know, you go in and you, the first thing you realize is that, you know, it's sitting on, um, a server somewhere. A friend of mine had a hosting company. It was sitting there, it, you know, it'd been configured with essentially just a bunch of discs. There's no redundancy. There's like a Linksys, um, you know, switch that maybe even hub that you could buy at 
Best Buy sitting in front of this thing. And, and then you're wondering why it, why it all fell down. Um, you know, the, the same machine that's running, you know, serving it up has also got, you know, some kind of Postgres database on it. And it's just, it's, it's just kind of, you know, not ready to handle everybody all at once. It was, it was, it was having a hard time. And, you know, the company, I think basically had made a platform choice out of the plat, you know, the fact that the developer they found knew the platform and they had found this guy, he was located in Poland and he was a real, you know, advocate for twisted Python. And he had built the whole thing and, and twisted himself. Like one. So was guy. he? He was. Was he the like the first developer? Like someone found him or knew him or some like that? some. I think somebody found him on you know like a forum somewhere, and uh, and he was the first one there, and and he had done essentially what I would call like the prototype, which was now the thing that was out there in the public, and we had to quickly staff up with developers who had some of these um, skills. Uh, this original developer was quick to kind of drop off the face of the planet. The minute <laughs> okay. this thing got some traffic, he became harder and harder to locate. And uh, there, there were, it was just one of those situations um, where you were being held hostage by, by somebody um, and by a platform that you might not gives have Gives me a knot in my stomach with. just hearing that, that yeah. phrase. Yeah, and it was it was um it was very it was a very precarious situation and it was not one that that I felt comfortable in and I don't recommend. And the first thing we did was we found as many developers who knew the technology as we could. So the so you were really just trying to eliminate that single point of failure risk with that one developer? Exactly. Like that's the first thing. That's the only thing we could do to begin was, okay, let's get mm-hmm. some other people involved who can, first of all, let's validate, like, did this guy, is this even good? Mm-hmm. Like, why is it having so many problems besides just pure infrastructure negligence? Yeah. And, I mean, I, I, yeah. I, I think, I think that is just, I, I hope people understand that that's super important, but you just, you should never fly in a plane with just one engine. No, no. And, and, you know, the, the infrastructure was easy to, to quickly, um, fix. And then you realize, oh, that wasn't, that wasn't the only problem here. Like this thing has, has been archi- the, the architecture of this application is, is not good. And, uh, you know, this was built for like two people, not, not 2 million. <laughs> so and there's yeah. no way. There's so so you no called way. it a prototype and not like an MVP. So I guess this was not actually viable at this stage. Um, I'm sure to, uh, you know, just to be, to be very frank, I'm sure to some investor who saw it, uh, you know, under zero stress, it was a, an MVP, you know, here's like, uh, you know, I, uh, MVPs to me are like, proving that you can build something crappy. Um, yeah. Like, Hey, yeah, we can build something crappy and, uh, and Hey, we'll even put it out to the public so they can experience something crappy. And maybe that will make you convinced that we can create something amazing. Mm. And, and the logic, I don't follow the logic, right? I just don't. It's like, you know, it, it just, because I can like draw a stick figure doesn't mean that I can, you know, <laughs> paint the Mona Lisa. I mean, and but it's, it's on the way. Like, yeah, I can, yeah. I can extrapolate, right? Yeah. Yeah. Cause it looks like a person. See, mm-hmm. that's a head. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so it's, it's really, 
you know, the, the company found itself in one of these situations, which a lot of companies do. And I, I'm not faulting anybody. It happens um, where, you know, you essentially have $5 and you build something for $5 and you get something that is worth $5. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, and, I mean, and, it's, in it's, your mind, was there a different way of doing it? Like, like if, if, it wasn't built that way and it took longer to get something more stable. It would have been worth waiting before getting it out in front of whatever hug of death site that brought all the traffic. Like would it had been better to wait and make a better first impression or was this just, I I guess looking back fine. I think that at that time and, and possibly uh, still today in some ways that there's this you know formula that has um, presented itself which is you know you 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 come up with a an idea or a deck and then you you build a, a, a some version of this I'll call it a prototype um, and you get some user feedback and the type of user feedback that you know you one might think is the best type is the general public, AKA the world. And, you know, I mean, essentially, yeah, you got some press and, and, and I think that that's, that's probably what the company was most appreciative of was, Hey, we can send this, you know, tech crunch or whatever it is link to our investors or our desired investors. And look, we're making headway. Like we're, mm-hmm. we're making stuff progress. Yeah. Look, like we're doing it. And, you know, and, and, and hope that the fact that it falls down when that investor clicks on the link, um, can be forgiven, you know, uh, you know, I think it would be much, probably a better idea to, you know, create something closed if it was a prototype and it was and say, Hey, why don't you guys come and we need everybody, all of our friends and our network and potential investors and angels, come on in and upload some video and, you know, let's, let's kind of see what happens. Before we launch it out to everybody. Like ramp up a little bit yeah. more slowly so that the problems happen one at a time or not give it a, all at give once it a or test. something. I mean, I mean, you got to remember like, I, and this story goes back like almost 20 years and, you know, how was at scale, how was a company going to moderate the video that was being uploaded? If it were, if they were paying for, um, ads being served doesn't the company have to prove that the that the person who uploaded it owns it like there are a lot of unanswered questions to just go blazing out into the world with an idea right but but at that time and it wasn't just rever it was everybody you you definitely were in a position to ask for for forgiveness later i mean youtube their strategy was and in some ways still may be just put whatever here like just put it up. You know, the more content we have, the the better it is, the more the more clicks we're going to get, the more videos we're going to serve, the more perceived value we've created and that strategy actually worked. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I but mean, it must have been I, I can't remember the timeline of YouTube, but that must have been like a gigantic loss leader, right? I mean, that just oh, yeah. was ludicrously expensive for them to to do that then to eventually try and turn it around. No, I mean, at that time, whether it's YouTube or anybody else, like, you know, their, their bandwidth is very expensive. Infrastructure is very expensive. 
you know, everybody's fighting over, I mean, here in LA, it was like, how close to one Wilshire can you get? You know, and, and that premium bandwidth, that, that tier one was, was not cheap. Right. And a lot of companies, it, this was, it, you couldn't go like, be like, oh, I want to load balance this stuff. And I'm going to go like figure out a way to kind of do the cheap version of um, Cloudflare or whatever it is like that, that stuff didn't, it, it wasn't out there. I think, um, what is it? Akamai was, was the big cash, like dumb cash yeah, provider. CDN, yeah. Right. And so CDNs were kind of a thing, but like just updating the CDN was, was its own issue. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. like none of this stuff was like sophisticated the way it is now. So the at tools this time, didn't exist. Yeah. So, so would you consider that, that it was a much bigger ops issue at this time than a, than a development issue or, or no, it was just both. Well, I, I think, you know, at historically, I think a lot of developers had to have a certain level of, of, you know, systems administration knowledge. They, they had to know the OS. They had to know their way around. Yeah, that's true. Um, it's, it's a lot more specialized these days. Yeah. And so, and, and you didn't have like big DevOps teams. I mean, I was the DevOps guy at, at Rever for a while and, you know, and I was the CTO and I'm, I'm no, I'm not a very good DevOps guy. You know, until we reached the point where we realized we need to hire somebody who knows what they're doing, and th and that guy immediately came in and said, "You got to move this over here. We're going to host it somewhere else. We need to buy. We need to spend a few hundred thousand dollars on servers, or else this isn't going to work." You know, but and that's a tough pill for a startup. I was like, going to say, did what? you did you do it? Was that the good? Was that the yeah. plan? Like yeah, that work out? We did it. Mm -hmm. We moved everything out of. Um, you know, this, this smaller hosting company, um, who had, who were perfectly good if, if what you were doing was not like, like massive trying video to be sharing. YouTube, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But if you were serving up web pages over PHP with like a MySQL backend, I probably, you could do that all day long, but you're serving up like, you know, you know, I don't know how many, but let's say, you know, hundreds and hundreds of gigabytes at that time, um, an hour, like you, it gets expensive. You need to go out and you need to negotiate better rates on the bandwidth and you need to be able to commit. You need to have some idea of how much bandwidth you need. It was a very different type of exercise. Yeah. Was that something that you felt like you could have done or should have done sooner that, that upfront investment, that hiring that person, or was it one of these things that it was good to do it once you felt that pain and it was timed fine. I think, I think it, I, I was not, I, it, you know, I was, um, I was not in charge of the money there. Um, but what I, what I believe the situation had been was, you know, you hit this milestone, you get a tranche of cash mm, mm. and then you go and you make, you make the investment in, in whatever you need, infrastructure, developers, people, whatever. And, and that was the way that that company was run. And that was the way a lot of companies were run and possibly still are today. Mm -hmm. you know? And then on the, on the development side, like what kind of, I guess, what were the goals? What were the challenges? Like, do you, was that being run well? Like, did you, were you just getting features shipped reliably or, or was there any kind of like feeling of like, why is this taking so slow? Why can't we uh, get anything done? I think there was the way that the, the company was operating. Um, well, first of all, we, 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 we brought in more developers and that helped. 
and they told two friends and they told two friends. So we had this very like network based, you know, from the, the, the twisted kind of community. Mm. We had, we mm. had a bunch of folks and, and with each one, each person that we were introduced to, we kind of went up the totem pole of the who's who in that world. And we ended up with, um, two incredibly talented developers who one liked to wear white and one liked to wear black. It was quite funny. And, <laughs> and Westworld. Yeah. And, and, and the man in white lived in Australia and the man in black lived in Finland and they both ended up coming to Los Angeles either, you know, for extended stays or eventually permanently. Um, and, and these two guys, you know, were, were kind of those like can do easily do the work of like, 10 people, right? They were, they were very, very complimentary and they could, they were, I don't, I don't know if they weren't exactly the same in their methodology, but they could definitely, uh, keep an eye on each other. Right. And that, that changed things because now they, they were like, well, we're going to divide and conquer. So the man in white goes and focuses on building like the best API he can build so that the salespeople can start to do deals with, um, website owners who want to serve, who want to add video, right? And so that that idea of we need to have an API creates a whole new line of business for us, you know, which is you, you know, which led to ultimately a white label package in the form of an SDK that was as easy as unzipping a file and changing a config file. And you, if you had like a LAMP server, you're good to go. You're serving video. You know, it was, it was so, it was made so incredibly easy. We brought in somebody who specifically liked to write like dev docs and we had really good documentation for how this was going to run. Um, we, we, you know, we had a, a person on staff who was a decent Python developer who also was a, a serious like Postgres guy and redid all the way the database was, was, was being handled. Like mm -hmm. we, we started to specialize. Got it. And how did you how did you incentivize bringing these people over? Was it just that they were really happy to work with their friends, or was it you had good compensation? Were they expensive, or was it something else? I think it was a, honestly. I think that the, that companies at that time or in that stage or that have that feeling like they're a part of something that. Like, you know that this is going to be a thing and there's a possibility that you could be a part of the, the thing that, that, that is it. Um, it feels a little cult-like. It has a cult-like status. And I think some of these folks enjoyed the camaraderie. Um, it was a very small, tight group. And, uh, in, and I consider myself a part of that group. Like, we, were, we were, spent a lot of time online together. And... You know, as people started to come out and visit Los Angeles, I think they could see themselves being here. Um, you know, it's nice weather, et cetera. And, uh, you know, and some of them took took the plunge. And, um, you know. But, and, you were, but you were working with them quite a bit when they were remote in yeah. other countries. Yeah. Which, it's amazing. I mean, now that's commonplace, but that was not at all uh, then at all. There was there was a, a tension between um, the executive team on allowing that to continue. Some of the folks really felt that they wanted to see these people in the office. 
was that colored by the the Polish guy disappearing or was it just something else? I think I think it, that didn't help, right? But but the way I always like you know, this is going to be a little bit crass, but you know, the 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 boss likes to see the minions to remind <laughs> to remind them that they're the boss. Yeah, I was going to say, can you be a boss if you don't have uh yeah, if you, if you, you don't know, have surfs any, toiling got, the, the yeah, fields you, that you can see? You know, yeah, you can't be a really you know, what supervillain doesn't have henchmen, right? Yeah, it's like you got to have minions. Yeah. And I think I think part of it was just a very natural um desire to be like, well, I want my people here. If I if I want to talk to so and so, I want to just walk down the hallway and talk to them. And especially for the BD people and the sales people, they wanted access to engineers, um, not only because they're probably tired talking to me and have me say, Yeah, well, you know, I'll add that to the list that we're never gonna get it to, but they would, it was a way, it, you know, business people like <laughs> to go to cut the line. Yeah, yeah. They like business people like to go around the process and try to like tempt the engineers, um, to, to, to kind of build something that they want or they need, or they think they can sell. Yeah. And that was definitely, I think, uh, uh, an honest ambition. And, and that was, um, driving like this, you gotta, you should come here. Okay. And not and so, everybody and so did. They did. And so they did come. Sounds some like did. They, some, some did. did. Yeah. Not everybody. Some did. And it wasn't mandatory. Um, and I hope nobody felt that it was. But, you know, but there was definitely pressure. Mm-hmm. You know. And, and do, you th- did, do you think that, that that actually was good in the end? Like, was there any value to maybe circumventing some of the process or getting that in office? energy or it just really there there's a there's a danger i've discovered that there's a a very strong danger when you are the person with the checkbook or perceived to be the person with the checkbook and it's easy for you to become confused with the intentions of the people who are relying on you to write them a check and you know my experience might might be that, hey, I've got this great team of developers and I really like working with them. And wouldn't it be great if we all hung out and you guys moved here to where I live and we got to work more together and go out and have drinks and blah, 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 right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to me, that sounds really kind of fun, right? Because I'm under the impression that, that these are my buddies. And I forget that, you know, there's a good chance that we are buddies because I'm give, I'm paying them or I'm controlling their their income and when you forget that and you just think you're friends you 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 kind of tend to create situations that are not ideal for the people relying on 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 your the you for income and I think what may have happened, and I feel really bad about it, in fact, is that some of these folks moved and resentment built up because as it became clear that the company wasn't going to be the unicorn that everybody thought it was, and um, they find themselves away from everything they know, they've, they've moved up, they've packed up their whole lives. And, and I totally understand how you would start to be resentful of that. Mm-hmm. And that resentment's gotta gotta go somewhere. I mean, yeah, in your gotta, mind, is that 
it's got a name that... and it's got a face and yeah. that's you it, or in this case it was me and uh and i own it now but but at that time to discover that people were resentful of of having to move for a job or whatever whatever like like i i didn't understand what i had done wrong i was very ignorant to the situation you know i and i wasn't even i, I mean i wasn't like 15 years old i was young but and i should have known better but i i didn't know mm-hmm. i mean so what would you have done differently or what would you i guess advise a, a founder in that in that vein i think that you need to really figure out like who specifically in terms of vision ownership who needs to be in the office now the problem is is that a lot of founders who are not technical right i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of issues and i don't need to get into all of them when you have people who start a company because they like the idea that they think that they should make an app or a website or you know a br experience or whatever but they actually can't do that right and it it's almost strange because you know it, i don't know where where this got into culture but it was like you know okay you know it would be really cool having a restaurant have you ever had a restaurant no do you know how to cook no do you like talking to people no do you like working a little do you like hanging out at restaurants yes Right. So, so, but the, but the, the logic is I should have a restaurant. Yeah. And I think that people somewhere along the line, yeah, people are like, yeah. I like those things. I should build one. Even though I've never, I don't have the foggiest idea how to do that. But maybe I'm really good at convincing people that I can do that. You know, I've, I, I can make things pretty. I'm a good talker. I'm a hustler. Mm, right. Idea and, guy. and yeah, everything, everything I read. You know, Mark Andresian says the 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 you know the three greatest qualities in startup founders is hustling and not going to bed. Well, hey man, I like hustling and I, I have I have one errors. <laughs> you know, I have insomnia. Sign me up. And and you know, and and hey, I can go on like Fiverr or whatever, and I can find some devs because you know that's not a big deal. It's like hiring somebody to, it's like going to Home Depot and grabbing some of those guys and they'll come and paint a fence. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, now the thing is, is that painting a fence, you could probably figure out, right. And you know, if it's done well, but if you hire somebody to build like a complicated piece of technology for you, how, how do you know that it's actually built right? Like, yeah, if you can't you, tell the difference between a real Rolex and a fake Rolex, you probably shouldn't be selling watches. Yeah, so you kind of you end up in these situations, and you know, I, I I tend to believe that the that you're going to need some people close by, close to the founders, if not the founders, who can actually validate things. And I don't, I'm not saying they have to do the building, but they have to know if it's done right. And they have to be able to communicate what needs to get built, you know, for, you know, I I guess we can disclose this, Um, you know, working with a company like Superstruct, which I have, you know, I, I know going in that I need strong product presence, you know, with me, that that's not what that's not why you hire like a dev shop typically if you're hiring somebody to build something for you 
builders, you need to provide some blueprints. You need to provide the plans. You need to know what you want to build. And I think what may happen often with companies that want to outsource their development is that they get confused as to what the company is going to provide. And you know, if you say, hey, let's, okay, let's get together and let's talk about what we're going to build. What should we build? Like yeah. asking the consultant company what to build is, is probably very confusing for the consultant company because they're like, we showed up, we're ready to go. <laughs> it's, like, you know, uh, we, it's like for, you know, like your house. Yeah. Like it's asking the contractor to, to be the architect. Yeah. We got all the guys here. They've got all the tools. Show us the plans. We're ready to do it. And then it's like, no, we should all sit around and talk about what we're going to build. And, and that's like all of a sudden the biggest waste of money, by the way, because then you've got people whose specialties is not figuring out what to build, trying to figure out what to build. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's. Um, I mean, you mentioned Superstruct, right? And and so, I mean, I'll say I've definitely had, uh, you know, quite a bit of success working with, uh, you know, you Rob and companies that do take product leadership seriously and um, a much harder time with clients that don't. Um, and so Superstruct really uh, tries to filter out and only work with companies that, that do take product seriously. And the reason is because for a company to be successful, and things are a lot more stressful when a company isn't successful. For a company to be successful, it really has to know and understand what its customers or partners, depending on whatever its business in, uh, want. And that is not something that you want to rely on an engineer for or uh, a consultant that specializes in in software development. Uh, that's something that that you as the founder or your head of product or um, somebody else uh, that is that is really core to your business, uh, that's something that that only they should be trusted with. And I, yeah, I, I, it is it is amazing how often I see that, and I, I actually see it a little less um, where a company like really tries to rely on a dev shop. I think it's more likely that there's just a, a vacuum where the like I've seen really crappy heads of product do this where they 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 think that they have it clear in their mind. And so when then they write tickets, it's just like three sentences and they expect to get on the phone and like talk it out. Yeah. Um because they, they want like in their mind, I, I think a common one is like, oh well, you know, like you're the engineering expert, so you got to tell me what's possible or not. So let, let's just like riff. And um there's there's issues with that. But more common uh then then that i think is when you you have an engineering team and you want to rely on those engineers to absorb the culture you expect them to learn about the industry and understand the customers and just kind of do what is right for the situation and i think what's what's a little bit problematic about that is that sometimes you can get lucky and you can have a very product-minded engineer who has more of a business sense, has more of a customer development sense, and they can save you. Um, but I think it's a very dangerous bet to make that you're going to have engineers that are that are good at that. Yeah, yeah. I um, 
I was thinking about this actually today, right? And like, what is, if it's not the founder, right? Because traditionally, like, you know, you have like two founders and one is the, the product guy and the other is the engineer, mm-hmm. right? It's probably the what like- and the how. Yeah. It's like, okay, this is what we're going to build. You know, I don't, can you go build this and manage mm-hmm. getting it built and I'll continue to riff and take care of this part. If you're not going to do that, you know, because there's no, there's no exact way to do it. Then like, let's say you have, um, you know, uh, I don't want to say less hands-on, but let's say the CEO is not going to be the head of product. The first hire needs to be the head of product, Mm, right? You mm -hmm. can't start hiring people or building anything until you have the right person. And the head of product is almost like the backup CEO, I believe, in a startup environment because their their responsibilities are very closely aligned. You know, product person has to have a good gut, but also be willing to do some kind of user research. Because yeah. I mean, you know, like if you're not, yeah, if you're not building yeah. something people want, you're gonna have a really bad time. Yeah, and and so they need to go out and get that information. Like, hey, you know, we put this in front of 250 people, and 60 percent said it sucked. Um, they would never use it. Maybe we should do something about this. Here's some ideas. Whatever it is, like you, that person needs to be able to do that. They also need to be able to interact with customers, right, directly, especially like in a in a business to business. Um, sensibility, where it's like, hey, I went and talked to, I don't know, Home Depot, and this is what I, they said, and and I figured out a way to integrate that, and 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 if you're doing that type of communications, you you must have a little bit of salesmanship if you're going to be customer facing, and so this mm-hmm. product role, it is possibly the one of the hardest roles to hire for, and will sink your company if you hire the wrong person. I honestly believe that this person holds the keys, which is why, again, it's typically held by the CEO or the founder. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 one of those things that's really dangerous to outsource because if you get it wrong, it's hard to to recover. I, so for you as a as a founder, I get, like what what has led to the most success there has it just been handling the product yourself or have you been able to to figure out a way to hire those people um i think now i would say i'm i'm very hyper focused on being able to hire those people or groom those people right mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. you know a lot of times someone hasn't had the the opportunity to develop all of those skills and i do believe that everybody should have like the equivalent of, and I don't mean this in a in a weird way, but an apprentice that that they are training or to be capable to step in for them, because I don't think that anybody should should like no organization should rely on any one person. Yeah, including goes back inc- to, including the founder. Yeah, it goes back to a plane with only one engine. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I think for me, that's my way of thinking of that is always where if you want to be promoted you have to have a replacement. And so it's sort of up to you to be able to train your replacement so that you are not like forever tied to that role. And I think that, that in my view, I think that matters a lot for founders because you need the company to grow 
And so you are almost always looking for a promotion because you need to rise with the company. And so you can't, you can't have one foot nailed to your previous position because you can't like bring somebody up behind you. I mean, or I guess you just get really good at hiring from the outside, but that, that has its own challenges. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, the, the tough part about, about hiring from the outside for those types of roles is that people from the outside tend to bring with them, and it, it's, it's not always a bad thing, but a culture change mm-hmm. and can be very disruptive. And it's really easy to bring an outside force and lose like a bunch of people that you didn't want to have leave. Right. And, and it could be something as stupid as, um, this is a real life, a real life example, but Hey, everyone's used to coming in at 11 AM because they code at night. We hired a new VP of engineering. He wants everybody here at eight o'clock, <laughs> eight 30 to do a stand up, and you lose and you lose the whole staff right? or some portion of the staff is just like, you know, this isn't what I signed up for. Yeah, yeah. And, not, and not that I've ever left a job. <clears throat> no, but you you like get that. my point. And yeah. then the person coming in doesn't do, is not really doing anything wrong. Right. They're bringing a formula for success in their mind that works, and they're trying to do the best they can. And this is how they do it. Mm-hmm. You know, but your culture just got like turned upside down, and you have to be ready for that. Yeah, and there's so many so many things like that 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 are almost invisible and you just you just don't you don't don't recognize it. Yeah, it's just like I'm almost just, uh, just imagining like somebody <laughs> it's like, "Hey guys, like I've got this cool thing, it's fire." And they just don't know that the room is like full of hydrogen yeah. or oxygen yeah. or something like that. And, like, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but it's it's and it's hard, right? It's hard. Um, I've I've seen, I've met and worked with some really really solid product people, like really really solid. And I've also been around when being a product person became a thing, and everybody was a product person. Yeah. When did that change? Was that was that just something like like Marissa Myers, like product manager, got? super famous or was it before then i think it it was around that time right and so i i I think it was like around you know the mid early the mid um 2000s uh to to you know to to probably like now even in a way but you know i think somebody thought that sounded cool and it seemed like a good role and it and, and read something about it and then a bunch of people put out some books on how to become a product person or a product manager and then you had all these people who, you know, five years ago had no interest in computers or building technology who, who were going to be product people and, you know, and, and, and companies wanted product people. Everyone, you know, they listened to a podcast where some clown said, you need a product person. And they they all ran <laughs> out to try to get one. And, um, and I remember having dinner at, at a friend's house that I worked <laughs> Didn't we with. Did we just say on this podcast that yeah, people yeah, need yeah, a good product? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and, and but I remember having dinner with a friend and his his uh, fiance at the time. I was like, "Well, what are you reading?" She was like, "I'm reading this book on how to be a product person." And I was like, "Oh, what's your job? Where do you work?" She's like, "Oh, I do product at blah blah blah." And it was like, "Oh, okay." You didn't strike me as that type of person. Like I didn't think you liked technology. 
Like there's nothing about our conversation that that made me think that you had the least interest in technology. So you had all these people, I think, flocking to the field who I don't even know if they enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Because the whole thing is like what what I try to when I ask people um in interviews and stuff, right? I don't I don't like to test anybody. They'll out tech me probably and I'll just look stupid. So it's more like well, what is your passion? And you get people talking about their passions and then you try to figure out how the passions are connected to what they're going to come do for you, right? And sometimes they're not connected at all. Like you can't put together the puzzle, right? Like I remember someone came in and we talked, maybe, I think I talked to you about this guy once. I can't remember his name. He was super nice. We talked about beekeeping for like an hour, right? And what I was beginning to understand about him was the organization of bees, right? That there were these, it was an, it was an ecosystem that he managed and, and all the intricacies of that and, 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 and the process and how the honey got made and, and his little relationship with each bee or, you know, whatever it was. And he was there to do DevOps. And I was like, I totally get it. I know why you like bees. Like, I totally think that you would be a good DevOps person, Yeah, right? You're going to manage all of these systems. You're going to manage all the instances running. You're going to have to update them. You're going to, like, you're responsible. Keep everything healthy. Like, yeah. You you know, you're the beekeeper. Got it. Mm -hmm. Totally makes sense. Never talk to about one thing technically. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I totally get what you mean. Yeah, and it was just like, okay, the personality matches. I get it. You know, and I get why that you would like this job. Makes total sense to me. So what? Yeah. So what? Okay. So let's just say you are evaluating somebody for for a product. What would you want to see? I, I'd like to know what products they like. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, an easy one is like you know, I wouldn't ask it so bluntly, but we like let's just talk about cool products. Like, what are you into? You know, like what's the best product out there? Like, I remember I had this friend, and he was um. You know, he was telling, I need a job in IT. Can you know, um, uh, can you give me a reference? And I was like, okay, well, what kind of computers do you like? Do you have at your house? I don't, I don't really like computers, <laughs> and I don't like using my phone. So I have like a flip phone, and you just be like, wait, what? Like, yeah. like, like uh, yeah. And and I think with with product people, you know, there there's they love. I think they they have to love the users. Right, they have to be a user. They have to know what it feels like to 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 be one, to love a product, to have a product that you can't that you can't imagine living without. You know, I, I would I would assume they have a product of like of the week that they're real excited about. That they're kind of up like they, they they live for this shit, mm-hmm. right? And it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be necessarily all software. They just love the fact that we live in a, in a time where innovation happens so quickly that by the time you get your hands on the latest and greatest, it's almost obsolete. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the first thing that you said, that that like love of users and really, for me, that's that's what comes to mind. Like somebody that just really wants to understand the user, their problems, like what they find frustrating, what they need to do, because in my mind anytime that you're making a product there's literally an 
infinite number of decisions that you can make. You can, you can, it's just whether you put this here or over there, whether you hide it behind a dropdown or you have it on a separate page, you know, behind a menu, whether you don't allow it at all and you make them email you for that change or whatever it is, there's literally an infinite number of choices. And to make any of those choices well, you have to understand the user and you have to, and and I think where this becomes a very, very, very difficult position is also having an intuition about the relative trade-off between, okay, the user really wants this, or this was really going to help the user. How expensive is it on our end to make this real? Yeah. Like, is this going to make it harder to give them this other thing that they really want? Or is it going to require a lot of development time to build this? Is it going to require a lot of operational complexity to maintain it? And I think that combination of really understanding people and understanding or at least having an intuition to have the conversations with an engineer um, that that technical side, that combination is frustratingly rare. Yeah, yeah. One one of the things that um that that I would I would often think about is you know, and not just in making products, but in anything, right? Is you're either giving or you're taking, and products should give. It should be not be frustrating to use because that is taking someone is taking energy away from somebody and making them frustrated. So what's the right. so what's an example of taking like a really like long and tedious onboarding sign up yeah, flow? Like, yeah. like like where where like you don't have to be a, a, a an experienced person to know that this was not thoughtful. Like that you just the immediate thing is like, wow, you did not have to do this this way. This is way too complicated. Why do you need this right now? Why are you preventing me from from doing what I need to do? Yeah, you're making me do data entry. And you're not paying me. Like, like I'm, I'm not here to do that. I don't want to fill out a survey right now. I haven't done anything yet. Like, give me a minute. Show me what I can do. And you know, and and the thing about real product people is that they're able to go through the experience themselves as a user and as a designer, right? And because they're they're they they're, they tend to have like some natural experience design, you know, abilities. And so they're they're asking themselves like, oh, you know, like why did they do this? Like, what's the point of this? Why, why am I here now? Um, you know, I I I was evaluating like uh, these online language apps like Babel or Rosetta Stone, etc. And I was trying to reverse engineer like what was the what was the process to present it to me this way? And then you'll be like, oh, that's clever. Like that. Mm. Oh, that's clever the way you did that. I get why you. Oh, that's good. Right, and you start to have this other appreciation, and you know, me being the way I am, I'm I'm getting excited about the fact that it, it was created by people who clearly care about me and want to give me a good experience. Um, you know, I would say the same thing about the majority of things that Apple does. You're like, oh, this was a gift. Oh, it given again. It's giving again. So much that when they do something wrong, uh, like the butterfly keyboard, you're just like wait, what? Like the earth crashes because Apple did not give you a gift. Yeah. 
you know? Yeah. Like, like I can't believe you rolled out this keyboard that hurts my fingers. Like, what? Wait, this is so unApple. But some companies, you know, that they're really bad at at design, and it's and you can blame the product people. Like, you can tell if the company has a good product team by the products they put put out. I and I'm not saying that the engineers don't have tons of input. Clearly, they do. But the that product person is responsible for what gets out to the public. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 going back to what we were talking about before, product is the what, engineering is the how, and many times there is no how for a given what. You do need the engineers to be able to say, like, no, we can't do that. There is no, there is no how that will get us that. Or it would be something like, yeah, we could do that. But if we tweak the what a little bit, we can do it much faster or much less expensive or with much less pain. And I think those conversations are really important. And actually, I think a question for you is how how have you seen the relationship between product and engineering uh, go wrong and and how have you seen it go well? I mean, what 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 leads to good productive um, I guess uh, process or or working between between those two functions. I want to be careful here because I don't want to stereotype engineers. Um, oh, it's but okay. there's this definitely there's definitely like an engineer engineer persona, right? And and the the typical engineer persona makes you work. You got to work for it a little bit. You got to prove yourself. Um, you know, I, I can remember lots of times the the minute somebody figured out that I wasn't a complete moron technically. Uh, because, you, you you know, I think if you talk to me, like just hanging out, you wouldn't think I was like a technologist. You might just, I don't know what you'd think, right? But there'd be, there've been these times in my career where I remember that an engineer was like, oh, wait, you shouldn't know how to do that. <laughs> you know? And then you reveal that you have like an entire server room in yeah, your house. Yeah, it's like, it's like, well, you know, I'm not as useless as you think. And, and I've tried to strategically use that to my advantage to gain respect at the right time so that I can be in the club without asking to be in the club, right? Because if you think back to like... Uh, you know, Michael Scott or somebody who so badly wants to be loved by the staff that he ends up alienating everybody constantly and, and of course, himself. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I always thought the best way to, to interact with engineers was to naturally show them that, that I have a deep respect for what they can do and by the way, I can I don't claim to be better at it or or know a fraction of what you do, but I know enough to have an appreciation. Right? And I think good solid product people don't have to be engineers to to be that. To understand like just how incredibly impressive a mastery of technology is when done right. But and I think they need to be able to identify when it is done right. Totally. And, and I guess I, I think the thing for, for me, I'm, I'm wondering is like, what 
yeah, what what is that process, right? So like how how do you set up like either I imagine, you know, more recently it would be that you do have a product person. So how do you set up that system so that the product person can be successful and the engineers can be successful, like that that the engineers actually are building things that are useful to the business and the product person is, you know, getting what they want done. I think it's, it's like there's different um, buckets of validation that we all want. Right. And there's like validation from our friends and our family and our partners. There's professional validation, which is, hey, I want this from the owner of the company or my, you know, my manager or my my peer group at work. Um, and then there's customer validation. And I think that there needs to be a very explicit way for product people to ensure that the engineers are receiving those last two buckets constantly. They need to know the appreciation that customers have. They need to always understand that, hey, this thing that I just wrote you know, on my computer actually has implications beyond me you know, pushing it to Git. Like, there's someone who's impacted by this, and especially if it's positive. Right. The negative stuff you can manage and it can help like, you know, hey, we got this feedback and no one called you terrible, but we should do something about this. But the positive stuff is so important. And I think if the product person becomes kind of the administrator of positive validation, it actually can can help manage that relationship and 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 make it very, very um, positive for everybody and and also it will allow them to better understand the the plight of the engineer and and there are times along the way that I think the product person can open up and show that hey in this position I'm in here's all the things that I deal with for everybody mm-hmm. right but you still get to have your moment like I don't prevent you from when it's great we point out that it's great and you did it. I don't take the credit from you. You know? I mean we talk we've talked about this before, this idea of credit in in um in corporate America where everyone's just people aren't it's the currency, mm-hmm. right? I want to show uh that I I did something great because ultimately probably I want a promotion or I want a raise or whatever and that's just the way we're taught and I might I might be so aggressive on how I get that credit. I might be cutthroat about it. Like mm-hmm. I don't care who doesn't get credit as long as I do. Mm-hmm. And if you're the product person who's that person, the engineers are not going to react well to you. Mm-hmm. They're going to smell it right away. Oh, that person's here and they just want it's a step this is a stepping stone for them. Mm-hmm. Especially yeah, an engineer point. who's been there for a while and they're like, dude, I show up every day and I and I, I do my best and I, I maintain this thing that nobody wants to maintain anymore and I deliver new features and I do it all by myself, right? And no one thanks me. Like I, I you know, let's just say I, I manage the ticketing system and the new, whatever, right? I, you probably wouldn't, you'd outsource that, but you get my sure. point, yeah. right? I'm doing the least sexy thing ever. And meanwhile, this person is just taking credit for everything. 
And I think that's a way that that ultimately the product people end up doing themselves a disservice and, and alienating themselves from the engineering group. Hmm. You know, I yeah, don't I think, think the engineers necessarily want to be product people, right? They may, they may not, but I don't think like every engineer secretly wants to be a product person. I think engineers want to contribute to the making of exceptional products. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I, I, I've definitely seen it uh, where the most important thing for, for an engineer is that people are using and enjoying the, the thing that they, that they built. Like it's actually being, being used. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like falls into that. Like, you know, have you ever been in a company and, you know, you make a hundred things and 99 of them, nobody see. <laughs> And it gets real frustrating because yeah. it's like, we, no one ever uses our stuff, man. Right. You know, I work on the stuff that nobody sees. Oh, yeah. cool. I guess we're going back to the, to the value of product is, is making sure that you're, you're actually building something that, that people want. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, whether that's users or, or businesses or whomever, like being smart enough to know that you're building the right things. Mm -hmm. Right. And that is the job of product. That's not yeah. the job of engineering. Yeah. Well, Rob, this has been great. Uh, where can people find out more about you online? Um, I, I'm actually on a social media diet, so you cannot, you can find me, but I'm not really, I'm just broadcasting. Uh, yeah. I'm not, in, I'm not, uh, in, active on social mm -hmm. media platforms. But if you hit me up on LinkedIn, I will get the email or you can email me direct. It's robmcgray at gmail.com. You can Google me, Rob McGray, and I'm easy to find. Awesome. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you, David. It was, it was, it was very, very fun to have this conversation. And, uh, you know, just again, to um, all the listeners out there, you know, uh, hopefully you found something here valuable and, uh, you know, I, I, I definitely feel, I feel your plight and I feel your pain. <laughs> You're not alone. Yes. All right, folks, that's it for today. I'm David Gutman, and I hope you join me again next time for the Superstruck Show.